Hey, this is Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLaw.com. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and to run their business. If you're a new listener, hey, thanks for listening. Head to FoundersTalk.fm for all the ways to subscribe. And if you're a long-time listener, hey, thanks for coming back, and thank you for listening. If you haven't yet, check out ChangeLaw++. That is our membership for our diehard listeners who want to directly support us, they want to drop the ads, and they want to get a little closer to the metal with bonus content more. Today I'm back with Sid Sabranich, co-founder and CEO of GitLab, hot off the heels of their massive IPO last October. To set the stage, we recorded this episode February 1st, 2022, and during the show, I mentioned the IPO'd at a $13 billion market cap, but they actually ended their opening day at approximately $15 billion. That is a massive win for open source. That's a massive win for GitLab, Sid, and the rest of the team. For little listeners, you know I've had Sid on the show before, so of course, I had to make sure we got Sid back on the show post-IPO to get all the details on this new journey. Big thanks to our friends and partners at Fastly for keeping the ChangeLaw podcast universe super fast globally. Check them out at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency, declare and mitigate incidents all from inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules, convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. You can create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. So we're back in the saddle, you and me riding again. So excited, so excited. I mean, the last time we talked was not that long ago, but pretty long ago in the, and I suppose the digital space, right? This is, we talked May of 2020, barely into the pandemic. And one of the big questions I have for you then was, you know, when is the IPO? Because you've been talking about this for a while. And I guess now we can say when you get an IPO, because congratulations, by the way, to you and the team. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's great to be back. And uh, yeah, it feels like a different era the last time we talked. Yeah. And we kind of have some history to some degree. I would actually say quite a bit of history. We talked to you the very first time in 2013. Like this goes way back. And that show was titled GitLab and Open Source. Yeah, you you were early. But I, I bet with all the guests you have, you're going to have tons of more companies that will go public. This is such an amazing space. Yeah. And I, I, I absolutely agree with that. It's like, 
And I think the question too, and we'll probably go into some detail around this is like, why? So Git, GitHub obviously was acquired by Microsoft. Um, I want to say like four years ago now in my memory, 2018, I'm guessing just from memory. Yeah, that's correct. I think their acquisition was 7.5 billion. We did talk to Jason Warner, who was one of the champions behind the scenes on that deal, making it happen. Uh, he was former CTO at GitHub. And one of the questions I've asked you in the past and come up often is, you know, to stay independent and go public or become acquired, you know, and, and what that is. And I think you shared a bit of sentiment around that the last time we talked, which was, I'll paraphrase it basically. You basically phrase it as if, uh, one, it wasn't just your decision solo. Like you don't make the only decisions. You do have shareholders and investors and board members and people who make decisions besides just you, just because you're CEO, you can't do anything you want. You have to have approval and buy-in from other constituents. And then also this idea, this ambition, as you had said, to remain independent. And so going public to IPO, GitLab into the public offering space was a strategic move to enable you to sort of, uh, I would assume, remain true to the open source roots. Is that what you meant by the independence? Yeah, for sure. Being a good steward of the open source project, but also being independent from any of the hyper clouds. It's become a multi-cloud world. And if you saw, for example, the Minio announcement uh, raising their yeah. Series B, they talk about most customers are going to use multiple clouds. Mm -hmm. And our customers want the same security, the same productivity, the same way of working, irrespective of which cloud they use. And commonly, they use multiple ones. They have a preferred one, but they had another preferred one some time ago, or they acquired companies, or they needed specific functionality. And what GitLab gives them is an independent vendor that supports every hypercloud, supports their on-prem infrastructure that many not many have, and delivers the same security, the same compliance, whatever cloud they use. And that's super important to them. Mm -hmm. We're seeing this more and more too. I would say like with, uh, you know, Copilot, Codespaces, and then there's alternatives like Gitpod to Codespaces, this agnostic, this sort of like multi-cloud, not tied into Azure, not tied into the Microsoft world. We're you know, people really love the GitHub infrastructure because of the community and the social and I would say their grip on the open source commons. And I, I use that term lightly, but kind of also negatively, like the grip, the word grip in there, because GitHub is obviously has done a great job and Microsoft, too, has done a great job for open source. But it's sort of there, I would say, stuck because of network effects, not because it may be the best place so much for it, but this agnostic approach, this multi-cloud approach you speak of, you've got Gitpod to code spaces, you've got tab nine on the co-pilot space, so to speak. So when you think about GitHub and non-independent and GitLab independent, agnostic, cloud, multi, no tie-in, this independence you speak of, how do you see this landscape shaping out where you sort of see GitHub pioneering or maybe introducing because Gitpod was out two years and open source in advance of code spaces and no not to code spaces or the work behind Gitpod, but GitHub came out after that with code spaces. Tab nine has been out there. I think it's been incubation. We've had the CEO on our show before on the change law podcast, talking deeply about the founder story of that and 
all the interest behind, you know, AI assisted development, essentially this, this term that's sort of propped up and Copilot has been a part of that as well. But like this Microsoft slash GitHub world where you have non-indie tools, non-independent tools, and then you have the GitLabs and the tab nines and the others in this sort of in quotes, independent space. What do you think about this? Yeah, there's strong network effects around open source projects. So if you're going to host your open source project somewhere, you can pick either, but there's an incentive to be on GitHub because a lot of open source developers are already there. That network effect is much reduced if you're talking about a company. If it's a company, I'm going to choose a platform. I can just tell all the people in the company working on the proprietary code to use something else. So that's something where we specialize. GitLab is an open source platform that mostly hosts closed source code. Mm -hmm. GitHub is the opposite. It's closed source and they're really good at hosting open source projects. So we've chosen different adventures and we're really comfortable with our adventure, Mm -hmm. making companies more productive, having a DevOps platform that allows them to go quicker from planning something to getting it out there and getting the feedback by integrating all the steps on the DevOps like cycle in a single application, a single data store and make that work really, really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm not even sure today what GitHub's tagline is. But I do know yours. As I said, we do have some history. We had the chance to come out to San Francisco, I think about four or five years back now. I think it you had another master plan. Every year you have a new master plan and you invited myself and Jared, my co-partner here at Changelog, to to announce that with you. And we talked really, I think it was like the early days of you sort of discussing this fuller, more DevOps platform. This is like early days, I would say, of it were the beginning innings of you know that adventure for you. Today, everything from manage to protect and everything in between, you call yourselves a DevOps platform. What does that what does that really mean? It used to be that most and it's still the case for most companies today that they had to evolve. They have more and more DevOps tools, they have more and more projects. And it evolved from every team can select their own tools to hey, we're gonna select some best in class solutions to now hey, we selected the best-in-class solutions, but we now need to add like digital duct tape to string it all together. And that approach is starting to break down. And what's much better is to have it in a single application. But that now is has a lot of functionality. And it seems that that is the future. And it means doing everything from planning and coding to verifying it, securing it, delivering it, configuring it, monitoring it within one application. We've seen that future a long time ago, and we're working with the wider community to make that platform as mature as possible so that it becomes a replacement for all the point solutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess to add to that, one more notch to that belt, you had, I believe it may have been your first M&A as an IPO'd company recently, Ops Trace, back in December. Is that your first M&A so far, I guess, as CEO and now IPO'd company? Yeah, and it's... It speaks to that strategy. We want to have better monitoring in that single application. And we were really impressed with the team at OpsTrace. And because of this acquisition, people can expect the monitoring functionality in GitLab to mature at a more rapid rate and become a replacement quicker for point solutions. Yeah. A couple of shows back before this show will be out, this show will be out sometime in March. 
So in late January, early February, released a show with uh, Honeycomb's CEO, Christine Yen. She's awesome. I mean, if you haven't listened to that show, Sid, go listen to that show. She's super wise. I love their journey. And, you know, they really coined the term observability. She shared a story with the conference Monitorama when Honeycomb kind of was early days in what they would call the observability space. And the tagline for the conference was like DevOps or Opsy things. Didn't have the term observability at all. And her CTO, former CEO and co-founder, Charity Majors, was giving a talk. And this is probably five or six. I forget what the, the time frame is. Listen to the show. It's in the show notes. It's in the transcript. I'll paraphrase most of it. But uh, Charity was giving a talk at the conference and it was something around observability. Like She started to coin the term. And so there was one talk that year at Monitorama and no tagline change. The next year, there were five or four talks with the term observability and the tagline for the conference was still the same. The next year, there was like 11 talks with observability in it. And then the, the tagline for the conference changed from just opsy and monitoring to also observability. So this really started to be a trend. And that's really what Ops Trace was was really pioneering was another area of observability. Did you not have observability prior to Ops Trace? What was monitoring like within GitLab at that time or before the, the MA? Yeah, we're still working on building this out. But the short part of it is we had some functionality, but people were hardly using it. We weren't using it ourselves internally, which is always a signal. Mm. So with this, we'll be able to more rapidly mature it. And observability is, is a complex subject, and uh, she can do a much better job than me explaining that. But one of the trends that has been happening is that you don't use a separate tool for logging and then a, another tool for metrics and then another tool to set alarms and then another tool for tracing. That's coming together in a single application. So you see as DevOps matures that tools are kind of starting to cluster together. We think that clustering is also going to happen between the different point solutions, between your observability stack. The observability stack should be informed about what environments you have, what you're trying to deploy. If I have a code change, a merge request, I want to know how my CPU usage changed because of that. And if that's really bad, I probably want to automatically revert it and redeploy that. Yeah, it's uh, from my understanding, and I, again, I think this is, you know, while it may have been born as an idea inside of Honeycomb, maybe even inside of Charity and Christine's heads as co-founders of that company, this idea of, observ of observability, I think it's transcended simply Honeycomb and simply their platform to become widely known and widely used as, I think anybody who's done anything with stack traces, logs, et cetera, from a, an error tracking service, one of our partners like Sentry, for example, I know they talk about observability, Prior to that, it was just simply error monitoring and error tracking. You know, this term observability has really kind of gone above and beyond what Honeycomb has done. And it's sort of like rounded. It's not even super clear to everybody. Like everybody doesn't have the same definition of what observability is. But from what I understand, it's focused on what's happening in production. Less like dev environments, obviously not my dev, my my local machine. It's more about what's happening in production and how to, as you said, how did this pull request, how did this merge request change or this deploy change production and what's happening there? The unknown unknowns basically is what uh, Christine has said to me on, on various conversations around observability. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And 
what you see at most companies is that only kind of their top applications have everything implemented. Their top applications, they have the logging, they have the error tracking, uh, they have the tracing and everything else. But the vast majority of applications don't have it configured. So that's what we want to make easier. Mm-hmm. My co-founder, Dimitri, coded error tracking in GitLab as one of the last things he did before he recently left. And now in GitLab, you can have error tracking set up and we're going to make that the default so that it's set up by default so that it's not an extra step, that it's not like your stuff is down and like, oh, I should add error monitoring <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Yeah, That should be done for every application. But if you have thousands of projects and you have tens and tens of tools, that becomes a really exponential complex problem. So the DevOps platform should solve it for you from day one. Mm. Something you had said, and I, I don't know if this is public or not, but uh, in your S1 roadshow where you sort of were on this road to, to IPO, you shared some of the vision, et cetera, et cetera. This idea of you know bringing your own tools, I, I think you said the term you used was BYO, so bring your own ops, I believe, and then best in class was another acronym. But essentially, like you had four different tiers and GitLab was the final, the far right. So left, I would equate to bad and right equating to good. I don't know, you tell me, but this evolution of how teams choose tools and then how they then, as you said before, digital duct tape them together, add members to their team, SREs, ops, you know, having to have, you know, more burn rate if it's a startup to have that kind of team to enable that. And I would imagine the reason why you're so bullish on all-in-one platform is one, you can have, in quotes, because you're probably biased, the best, right? And then two, that they're automatically configured, as you had just said, with error monitoring. Can you kind of break down the bring your own to the best in class to what GitLab is bringing to market as a, as a platform, as an all-in-one platform, single application, as you say? I'd love to. And this is all being driven by two trends. The first trend is more and more DevOps tools. It used to be you did DevOps if you had an SVN server and a Jenkins installation. Then you were doing DevOps. Mm-hmm. And today we have tools like Sentry for error monitoring. Like there's many, many tools that we need. And not only do we have more tools per project, we also have more and more projects. It used to be that you had a few monoliths in a company. Now you have microservices. The company is all becoming about software. So you have a growth of the number of projects. You have the growth of the number of tools per project. And together that's causing an exponential increase in the number of tool project integrations. And it's becoming too much work. And that's why it's shifting. When DevOps started with the early DevOps days, it was bring your own. Like every team could figure it out for themselves. But then everyone was working on different set of tools that didn't work. So a company said, we're going to do best in class. We're going to select the 10 DevOps tools that everyone here is going to use. And then the transitions between the tools became the problem. The handoff from your version management to your CI, to your CD, etc. So a company said, okay, we're going to innovate. We're going to make our own DevOps platform. We call that DIY DevOps, where you duct tape together all the different point solutions. And that DIY DevOps is where most companies are today, and it's starting to break down. And the next step is a DevOps platform, a single application with a single data store that does it all. And it's the natural evolution as we need more and more tools, and we have increasing amount 
of software in companies. When you say single app and single data store, now obviously your cloud, I know, which is kind of funny actually, let's rewind a little bit. Back in the day, the 2013 episode we did, which was, I would think, like the earliest I can imagine even knowing the GitLab name and the brand and even you, I think we called you Sitze back then, which I believe is your real name, but now you go by Sid because... Yeah, for sure. I think maybe that's easier for people to pronounce for you. Exactly. Right. So, I, I mean, I even go back and listen to that episode and I stumbled over even saying your name properly. So I apologize again, even though I did back then, but... It's good. There's a reason I changed it. I want to make it easy on people. That's right. And at the time, one of our sponsors was DigitalOcean. And uh, what's funny, I actually went back and listened to this and I stumbled through the ad read and we actually did the ad reads live on the air. We don't do that anymore. We do those in post-production and we make them better and all that good stuff. But one thing you said was that uh, you were using DigitalOcean back in those days even. And it was part of where you stored some of, I, I guess, you know, the application GitLab. So when it comes to a single app and single data store and you've got global customers, you know, what can you share about the infrastructure of GitLab to make it fast and global? Is it distributed? You know, when it's a single data store, do you do like, how much do you know about the, you know, your database, you know, how it's set up? You know, what do you know about, I guess, your cloud infra, basically? What can you share? Yeah, so GitLab.com is hosted on GCP, but as an open core project, what's really important to us that people can host it wherever they want. Okay. So a ton of our customers hosted themselves and that can be on GCP, AWS, on Azure, on DigitalOcean, on their own infrastructure. And then when I talk about a single data store, it doesn't mean that the whole, all the data in the world is in one place. It means that all your DevOps data is in one place. And the problem is if you have point solutions, they have different concepts. Like one calls it an environment and the other one calls it something else. And it doesn't quite map because right. that idea of what an environment constitutes is different. So you cannot quite, you can't get the metrics of your, of your review app. And now you don't know why your review app, what error came out of that. Or they, they don't fit with the right management. Like you're a developer and that means in this tool you can do that and in that tool you can't quite do that. So now, now you have to ask a colleague because the permissioning system wasn't right. Or you wanna see over the life cycle of work, like where does it get stuck? GitLab, you can measure cycle time. You can see, okay, this is when I plan to do it. This is when I started working. This is how long it was in the review. This is when I deployed it. And you can see, okay, where are, is stuff getting delayed so you can fix that. That's really hard if you use multiple tools. So either you end up with a whole bunch of digital duct tape, and you end up with a team, sometimes 50 people who are making your DIY DevOps platform, or you join the collaboration because GitLab is a collaboration of all the companies using it, making it better together. You save a whole bunch of time, you end up with something much better you could make on your own. Yeah, let's not forget that uh and I know you can't and many can't, but GitLab is open source. You'd mentioned that one of the advantages, you know, I guess a value add to using GitLab is that if your company buys in, let's say, yeah, GitLab's for us. We want to use it everywhere. We want to use it for our proprietary code. Okay, open source may have its home elsewhere, whatever. But this idea of having contributors be able to, to contribute back to GitLab beyond staff of those companies. Can you talk about I guess the advantages of, of that, that, you know, 
going back even to this idea of like the reason why you went to the IPO status versus an acquisition. And as you said back then, hey, if an, if there was an offer that was an offer, you know, you couldn't refuse, as the mob movies might say, that you and others may have chosen that route. But IPO was the route y'all went. And one of the reasons why was because you wanted to stay independent. And independent means, again, back to being able to stay true to open source and all this. But what does it mean for you know, a brand or an organization or a team or an enterprise to choose GitLab and then also be able to have some say in how the application gets built over time? Yeah, it gives them two things. It gives them control and kind of the fruits of the collaboration. So control, you can inspect the code, you can modify it, you can contribute back to it. Like if a company really needs something, and don't forget, this is one of the most, every company is becoming a software company. So the process that delivers the software is one of the most crucial pieces. And something sometimes you just really need something and you can contribute it to GitLab and it, it, it's there. The best thing about that is everyone is doing that. So you benefit from what others are contributing. Every month, hundreds of improvements in GitLab are driven by the wider community. And it's like one person writes it in one organization and all these other organizations benefit from it. Mm. And I think it makes so much sense that something you collaborate with is something you can contribute back to. This episode is brought to you by Square. Millions of businesses depend on Square partners to build custom solutions using Square products and APIs. When you become a Square Solutions partner, you get to leverage the entire Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for Square sellers. You don't just get access to SDKs and APIs. You get access to the exact SDKs and the exact APIs that Square uses to build the Square platform and all their applications. This is a partnership that helps you grow. Square has partner managers to help you develop your strategy, close deals, and gain customers. There are literally millions of Square sellers who need custom solutions so they can innovate for their customers and build their businesses. You get incentives and profit sharing. You can earn a 25% SaaS revenue share, seller referrals, product bounties, and more. You get alpha access to APIs and new products. You get product, marketing, tech, and sales support. And you're also able to get Square certified. You can get training on all things Square so you can deliver for Square sellers. The next step is to head to changelaw.com slash Square and click become a solutions partner. Again, changelaw.com slash Square. How do you build, I guess, a company around that idea and then take it public? So you have, let's just in, you know, put it in quotes, free contributions from your user base, whether they're enterprise or individuals of the open core. And obviously there's certain things that are in GitLab Enterprise that are, you know, has a different license. So it doesn't have your standard MIT license, which I believe is your open core of GitLab is MIT licensed, so very permissive. How do you build a company around that? How did you build a company around that? There's two important things. Like first, what's your business model? And we tried donations, we tried paid support, but the only thing that worked was paying for software, and that's open core. 
There's some code that's open source, some code that's proprietary. Then it's like, okay, what is going to be proprietary? And we decided to do what we now call buyer-based open core. It depends on who the audience is for that feature. If it's aimed at an individual contributor, it's going to be open source. If it's aimed at an executive who wants kind of company-wide reporting on compliance, it's going to be a paid feature. And one of the important things is even the proprietary code, you can see it. It's all out on the internet. You can inspect it. You can modify it and you can contribute back to it. The code you contribute back to the proprietary part, it becomes, hey, we, uh, we charge money for it. The code that you contribute back to the other part, mm-hmm. it stays yours. You have your developer certificate of origin and, and that's it. It's, it's a shared effort. How often does that happen then? How often do you see, I guess, non-enterprise staff contributing back to proprietary, you make money from it software? I think we're seeing it more and more where people use GitLab in their daily work. And it's, it's important. Like this is one of the most complex things they do. They need a change. They need to make some progress and people contribute back. So although most contributions are, is functionality aimed at ICs because individual contributors are more likely to contribute, we have many, many more contributions from ICs than we get from executives because typically they're not coders and it's, it's natural to make something you want, but we get contributions to the proprietary part of GitLab as well. And those are very welcome. Mm -hmm. And I think what we'll see more and more is that companies say, you know, this DIY DevOps platform of me was so strategic that I had 50 people working on it. Now that we start doing GitLab, like 45 of them can move on to something that really differentiates our business to really business initiatives, but five of them should stay behind. So if we need something, we can make it. If we need in-house expertise, we can do that. So I think the future of software is going to be more of a hybrid it's not just commercial off the shelf and it's not just open source. It's a hybrid of the two because that works the best. I guess uh, we're now at a point where, you know, 15 weeks ago you announced your IPO. I'm rough guesstimating that. So correct me if my weeks are off, at least based upon this record uh, date, air date, maybe more than that. So if you're listening to this, it's obviously more than 15 weeks, but that's my rough estimation. At least that's what the stock market's, my stock ticker shows I now track GitLab. So congrats. I think the price today is at like 60-ish dollars, something like that, I think. Maybe 62, 63, something like that per share. One, congrats. I mean, like I said, we've been talking for many years. I would, I guess, call us friends, Sid. I'm not sure if I, if you would consider me a friend, but I would. at least friendly over the years, right? We're friends. I mean, I don't call you for your birthday. I, w- I wouldn't mind if I knew it, though. I would, I would tell you. I, there's a lot of people I haven't bought a shaver, so I, th- I think we're friends. Okay, cool. And one, I'm very happy for you. I, and I've, uh, I've seen you, I would say, I don't want to use the term grow up because you're, you're a grown up, of course, but mature as a CEO and as a leader. Sure. As a, as a leader, for sure. I think you've had a similar mindset, but I think you've obviously matured over the years and I've been very impressed. In fact, a recent podcast we had, I can't recall which one it is in the moment, but I'll put it in the show notes. But, uh, I was commenting about your shadow program. And just how we were talking about being real as individuals and as leadership. And I think you're probably one of the most, from what I can tell, real people that I've, that I've ever interacted with, especially at a CEO level. I think you seem very genuine, very real, very caring. 
And uh, I, I love how you have that shadow program. Obviously, it's probably given a lot back to the individuals who have shadowed you. But I'm sure that you probably learned a lot, too, because sometimes when you're exposed to both the positive and the negative about yourself, you grow a little bit. And maybe that's some of where maybe you've gotten some of that maturity from. But speak to the the shadow program and I suppose just being real because you seem like you're a pretty genuine person. So the shadow programs is one of the best things that happened in my life. And it's two people at GitLab are in most of the calls during my week. And it's a two-week rotation, so there's always someone rotating in, rotating out that week. And first of all, it's great for those people. They, they learn a lot. person who just completed it was like, I did an MBA, and I spent years on that. And now in a few weeks, I learned how it is in reality. And it was a super helpful addition to that. It's also great for me. I get to share all the things I'm learning with other people without a lot of time invested and it's great to 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 educate people but also you're a slightly better version of yourself when the audience is bigger mm -hmm. so i try to be a better version and i'm sometimes a bit real to the extent i'm direct and negative and that's a, that's something i will continue to work on through my career but for example right now the shadows rate me on every meeting i do i get a positivity score and it's exactly what you think it would be. <laughs> and I, I get to see how reflect back on the day and what, what I, what I could have done better. And like at GitLab, a lot of things are, are going well. So in general, it should be pretty positive and I'm not always like that. So it, it helps me reflect on that, but it's also giving these people an idea of across the company. And GitLab is functionally organized. So you know exactly what's going on in your function, but it's harder to know what's going on within the company. And this is a great way to see everything and also see a bit of, kind of high level or executive decision making. Does do those, uh, I guess, scorecards are those, I mean, how, how do those get shared? They just get shared with you only? How does that work? Is there any visibility or transparency to others on these, on this scoring? There's no transparency in that. It's in the CEO shadow private channel. And that's just me, uh, the shadows and the chief of staff. Gotcha. So what does that do for you? Then? I mean, it seems like then based on this rotation and, and I, I guess time frame of how often people roll in and roll out this program, that's pretty much always. Is there ever a break when you don't have shadows? Well, coincidentally, someone um, had to not do the rotation last minute this week. So we moved that up. So this week not, but I, I think about 40 weeks of the year, we do it. There used to be a requirement that you already had to be a team member at GitLab for a while. We just scrapped that last week. So we, we try to keep it accessible and have a lot of people go through it. And I think for me, looking at those scores, it's a reflection. Yeah. What you want to be, especially in my position, if I say something, it carries more weight. So I want to be really intentional. And sometimes you're negative because there was really something wrong and people shouldn't realize that and take action on it. Sometimes you're negative because something else is going on and you're a bit grumpy and you aren't, you aren't fully aware of yourself. But that, for that person, it might be like the only half hour they're going to speak to you this year about the work and and it has a big impact and you weren't intentional about it and you, you got to improve that mm. what what do you think then uh is this a common program that ceos do i mean is this a common practice i know we'll probably talk about you know remote and 
how the pandemic shifted the world to really embrace this idea of remote. You've been remote first for a very, as far as I can remember, really. But is this shadow program a, a ubiquitous thing among executives like yourself? It requires an extraordinary degree of transparency and confidentiality. What other companies do is they have people shadow from time to time, but it's only one, two or three days. And the activities that they can attend are much more curated. Mm. Like all the hard conversations are moved out of those days to make it acceptable for people to shadow. At GitLab, they cannot attend every meeting, and uh, but they can attend a ton. And one reason is that we're really good in transparency. People are comfortable with bigger audiences, more people who are in the meeting can see the recording, can see the notes, etc. Also, so far, we've been really good with confidentiality, not aware of a single shadow leak. And I'm really proud of kind of the people who participate of, of kind of keeping it confidential and make it, making it possible for future shadows to attend. Mm. Yeah, that's something to think about, too, I guess, because uh, there's a lot more restrictions on what you can share and what you can talk about, obviously, because you're a publicly traded company. You know, there's certain things you can answer a certain way. I'd imagine that not so much before this particular call, but just in general, you have some sort of HR or PR coaching of like, Sid, kind of navigate from answering. I, my my famous kind of thing to think about is, uh, are you by any chance, Sid, a fan of the movie The Martian? The, the Martian doesn't ring a bell. Matt Damon? Oh, that, that movie. Oh, I I, I've seen it, but I don't recall it that well. Okay. Uh, I, I do think there's there's a lot of training around kind of, for example, material, non-public information. And as a mitigation for that, for example, the shadows are restricted in their stock trading. Ah, yes. Like even if you weren't before you joined the shadow program, what you learned during the shadow program is going to restrict you from uh, from trading because we don't want you to use what you've learned to to kind of trade and put other investors at a disadvantage. Right. Uh, the character who, or the, the actor who played Vincent Kapoor in the movie, just to kind of close that loop, he was, uh, I, I guess, I don't want to like ruin the movie for people, but hey, long story short, the main character is stranded on Mars. That's the whole point of the movie. Okay. So I'm not ruining the movie for anybody, but the character who, or the actor who played the character Vincent Kapoor worked at NASA and had to give you know, essentially a press conference and he had to answer some questions and he answered one uh question kind of just terse I would just say you know like he just it was a very quick response and the actor sorry the actress who played Annie Montrose you know cut to the next scene was basically like you can't say that you can't say that so I just I'm just imagining now that you're you're an IPO company there's certain things you, you may have behind the scenes hey you said you can't say that like that anymore next time don't do that it's not it's not going to erase it but it's more like you got buffers and boundaries that you have to endure as as a CEO of a publicly traded company. Yeah, I, I don't remember that scene. I do think I remember Matt Demon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what's this journey been like for you since we've talked in 2013? Maybe no ambition to IPA, maybe, maybe an ambition to IPO, I don't know. Maybe no, maybe a desire, but not a, a possibility that seemed possible at that time. And then we've talked a number of times over the years, as I mentioned, us coming out and helping you with the the master plan live stream you did had John Funner's talk a couple like a year and a half back. How's this journey been for you to to IPO? What what do you think the biggest changes have been for you? 
Yeah, we've always had the ambition to become a public company for two reasons. First of all, we, we had to return liquidity to our investors. Yeah, that's kind of necessary. And there's two ways to do that. Either you, either you get acquired or you become a public company. And we want to stay independent if we can. So that was great. The second thing was to get more attention for the company and the product. GitLab's been a bit of this great secret. And, and with going public, we've, we've gotten more attention for the, for the company and the product and the impact that we can have for, for our customers. So that's been, that's been amazing. At the same time, it's not, it's not the end of the journey. It's a, it's a step along the way. And we have big aspirations for, for the company. We're in a $40 billion DevOps market. And we see that our customers, when they implement GitLab, they can release 10 times as frequently as they could before, for example, at T-Mobile. So it's an amazing impact that you can have if you switch from DIY DevOps to a DevOps platform. So want to keep working really hard to make sure that that's, a, that's an option that everybody considers and, uh, and make sure that the people who, who partner with us uh, realize that impact. What about you personally, though? Like, what's what's changed in your life? Do you do you wear different clothes? Do you do you comb your hair differently? Do you go to a different gym? I don't know. Like, how has Sid's life changed? Are you more or less stressed? Do you have more free time? How's life for you? I think the, it, it, there's more visibility now. So far, um, so good. I think we've uh, we're super happy with where we are as a as a company. I actually didn't go to the gym, but now I'm working out with my wife and uh, uh, sometimes with a personal trainer. And it's it's great to be able to afford a personal trainer. We did a full body workout this morning. I never thought I'd become a morning person, but I get up at 5.30 now every day. Clothing-wise, I think you were laughing about my my shirt. I wasn't laughing. I was commenting. Definitely not laughing. I, I think I'm wearing the same thing every day. This works. I call it the Sid uniform. When I see you, at least the last four years. It's, it's a Sid uniform. I, I, wear, the, I wear the same thing. Uh, light, blue, it, light blue button up, clean shaven. It's, uh, it, it works. I have 10, 10 in the closet. I just wear that all the time. And there's more visibility, not just on the success of the company, but also kind of uh, on, on me as a as a person uh, and try to use that in a way that's, that's beneficial for the company. What about the company? How's the company changed? Cause I mean, you know, one thing I know about GitLab is your, your culture has been strong. You've been very strong on the remote side. You've been very strong in terms of your transparency, in terms of your open playbook and how you hire and how you document, you know, the goings and comings on of your company and the, you know, not all of it's out there for the world to see, but there's just a lot that you put out there. That's like, if you want to know, how GitLab operates before you even apply. It seems pretty easy to sort of skim and learn and kind of go deep. How has the company changed? Like, does IPO change a company? Has it strengthened you? Has it gotten, has it made it harder to keep things like you had said before confidentiality? Like what's changed about the company and culture? I think it's, it made us stronger. Like there's a lot of rigor around processes. If you want to go public and uh, that made us better. I think we, got to keep almost all of the transparency for which I'm grateful. And for our values, we have 20 ways in which we reinforce our values. And, and we were only adding to those. None of them got removed. And for the, for the team members, there's now more kind of liquidity for their stock. So that's, that's awesome. 
But also we try to communicate, look, this is a really big market. We have the leading DevOps platform and this is, this is going to be a very exciting journey going forward. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily standups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at ChangeLog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to signalwire.com slash video, mention Founders Talk and get an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, signalwire.com slash video and mention Founders Talk. We spoke last. We were kind of early steeped in the pandemic. It was May 2020. I think we were still trying to get our heads on in terms of what was going to happen with the world. And uh, just a few months into the pandemic. But GitLab has always been very remote first, as far as I've ever known it. And one thing that I think that you've done, kind of doubling down on it, has been this this handbook for being remote. How how does that one how how did that help you? I suppose with marketing did it help you with like brand awareness like what was the real reason behind a lot of the remote and remote first education you put out there yeah because we had this public handbook of how we operate it we always got a lot of questions and at a certain point we decided okay let's let's put more effort into this uh, we hired 
Darren Murph, the world's most productive blogger. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he started kind of taking the lessons from our handbook and putting it in a digestible form for companies. And uh, then the pandemic hit and suddenly everyone had to go remote and all that material he produced was suddenly highly in demand and we were able to help a ton of customers go remote. And with that, they also realized that like rem- working remotely, you're really dependent on your tools and same, same for producing your software. Like it's, if you have some, everything in a single application, that's going to make it easier. I think what's happening now is that a lot of companies made the transition to remote working and they're productive, but it doesn't feel that they have the same esprit de corps, the same connection to one another. So now a lot of companies need to become intentional about informal communication. And we're trying to help there and give them tools to do it. When people say they want to return to the office, it's not because they miss the furniture. They miss those informal moments. And you can create that while being remote. Mm-hmm. Don't spend 99% of your time on planning when to go back to the office. Spend some of your time of making the current situation work better for everyone and build that trust and build that connection. What are your thoughts then? Do you think uh, in terms of remote, is this... Will we go to back to hybrid? Will we always have remote? I mean, obviously not every job. You can't be a rocket scientist unless you're probably next to the rocket. Maybe you can. I suppose you could speculate on the physics of the matter, but to truly test it, you kind of have to be with other scientists likely in a similar same room and doing things. like. How do you see this remote world panning out? What's your perspective personally? I think there's very few jobs that can be done remote and I think in healthcare, there's some obvious examples. And yeah, if you're you're very close to the hardware, that makes sense. But even a rocket, to a huge extent, it, it's simulation. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to hybrid, but there's, there's two forms of hybrid. There's the hybrid where some people are always in the office and some people are always working remote. We think that's going to be very miserable for the remote people. There's also the hybrid where it's possible to come to the office and people do that every now and then. That works, but then you still have the problem that you need to hire near your office location. And a lot of companies are finding that the ability to hire anywhere in the world is a great advantage and that they're they're using that more and more. So we're going to have co-located companies, we're going to have hybrid companies of both variants, and we're going to have all remote companies. And I think a lot of the new companies are going to be all remote. Well, I know that uh, remote I guess as the enterprise grows, it, it becomes more challenging. But like, as you said, there's certain roles that truly just can be remote. And, you know, I uh, I saw a picture the other day on LinkedIn and it was uh, it was a cubicle desk with uh, a mom, a new mom. I assume a new mom because that's what the caption said. And their child right next to them in sort of like a play area. Like, I don't know. Is that a thing? Like, will we, will we have that kind of scenario where we may go back to the office and you have a new mom or a new dad or whatever, and they got their kid next to them at the workforce. Like, if you can work from home and you can do work from home, can you not do home from work was the was the angle of this idea. I think we, for a lot of people, the flexibility of remote is really helpful to deal with their other obligations in life. For example, kids. We should also remember that the past couple of years, it's not been like working remote. It's like mm-hmm. it's been working from home during a pandemic where your kids are can't go to school like that's quite something yeah yeah. we've always for example paid for offices Uh, remote doesn't mean work from home it means work from where you want to work and if you want to work from an office get level pay for that 
It's just that we're not all going to go to the same office. So I think there's going to be a lot more flexibility. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of people who now experience remote. Their companies are going to go back to their old ways and they're going to feel like they're not on the same page as everybody who's in the office. They're going to miss out on information and career opportunities. And they're going to say, you know what? I'm going to work for an old remote company going forward. Yeah, you see a lot of power shift to the, you know, to the, I mean, what do you call it? The worker or the employee, right? You see a lot of power shift there because they can, they're obviously the, the holder of their talents, right? And they can put that talent to work where they, where they so choose. It's opt-in. And they can opt out too. They can say, okay, well, if things change and, hey, I love this company. I'm, I'm loyal. I'll stick around for a bit and see how this plays out. But, hey, if this doesn't seem to work because I'm required to go to the office or drive that hour to wherever or live close to wherever and that just doesn't die with them, they have obviously the ability. And we've seen this, like this kind of great resignation that, that was said. And I think it was more just like, People choosing where they want to put their talents, right? People where they want to choosing where they want to place their most formidable years in their career, they choose. And sometimes in many cases, the majority of the cases, they're choosing to to go places where they're remote friendly or remote first. Yeah. People have more options and it's it's great. And I suspect that companies are going to become more differentiated. If you could only hire the people within some radius of your office, you could just you wanted to make sure that, that there wasn't any argument against you. Mm -hmm. Now that people can join you from anywhere, I think you have the option as, an, as a company to be more opinionated. Say, okay, this is what we stand for. This is what we don't stand for. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. Like we're transparent and we iterate. And Apple is secretive and they have big launches. Both models work. Apple is a more successful company than GitLab. Mm -hmm. But we really believe in our model and we're, we want to attract people who also believe in that. And there's enough options if you work remote to go somewhere else. And we don't need 100% of the world to want to work for us. We can still hire more than enough people if, if only part of the population believes in that. So I, I look forward to more choice mm. and not just because there's a greater demand for talent, which is amazing, but also because... People are going to more, be more picky. They want a company that matches the values that they have. Absolutely. Let's come back to, um, since you said, you know, comparing and contrasting there, let's come back to, I suppose, the the win here that's that uh, that you've done for open source. You had another win, I suppose, for open source. You're a publicly traded company. You're open source. What do you think this has done for open source, this kind of, this triumph? I think we're a very small part of that. I think yeah, we see a ton of great open core companies. HashiCorp. HashiCorp, Confluent, Elasticsearch. And we're following in the footsteps of even a pure open source company in the name of Red Hat. So I do think that if you make something that's used by developers, by IT people, uh, open core is becoming a more and more important way to do that to the point where it's getting harder and harder for 100% proprietary companies to even get significant traction for their offering. Let's just imagine somehow you're not who you are, right? And you can speak to Seatsay from 2013 or even prior to that about this possibility. What would you say to, to 2013 you in terms of ambition and perseverance and 
possibility? I don't know. Probably light up a little bit like it's going to be okay, but who knows? Who knows that what, what that would have done with, with the old me. So I think uh, it's, this path is, is not obvious and pretty pretty lucky with, uh, with being able to find such an opportunity and uh, now just focused on, on making the most of it. Yeah. I've always been impressed. I, I really have. I, I think you've done a fantastic job as a CEO of GitLab, you know, to IPO it, I believe. And I, I follow the headlines. And so these numbers maybe need to be corrected. Maybe you can't correct them. I don't know. I think $13 billion is what you IPO'd at roughly in terms of market cap, which when we compare that against, you know, the obvious competitor to you, which is GitHub being acquired for $7.5 billion, like they, I think there was some sort of comparison to like if they would have held out like how much more they would have made if, you know, the the shareholders, essentially the option holders of GitLab, if they had done what you had done. So, I mean, that's just such a, a massive number, really. I mean, $13 billion, Sid, congratulations. I think uh, GitHub sold for Microsoft stock, which did really well since, uh, since even since that acquisition. Right. A lot of the stock is with early believers in the company, the early employees, the early investors. So we're, we're working really hard to make sure that we, we keep growing as a company and, and uh, make sure that it's a, it's a successful outcome for, uh, for as many people as possible. Since we're talking about GitHub, coming back to that, I, I know that over the years, and I think we may have touched on it a little bit in the last time you are on Founders Talk, you know, obviously GitHub is a competitor to you. It, there's an obvious comparison because they're the next Goliath in the room. They may be, I don't know, are you, are you David? Are you Goliath now, Sid? I don't know, you can answer that one. But there's a misconception, I, I would say, to GitLab, to know the DevOps story. And I know we share that quite a bit, but there's this chasm, I think, that people seem to think that GitLab is not a is not the, the DevOps platform that you are, that you're only code. And that's kind of where GitHub was for a while and still kind of is like, hey, that's where we put our open source code. That's where we put our code, period. And now, obviously, code spaces and Copilot and the various things being bolted on enable that to become more platform-like. How does that misconception strike you? What do you do to push back on that? I think... It's, it's hard to kind of see the breadth of GitLab, and that's because some of the functionality is very early. But if you look at our history, we've been able to go from just source control to also having the probably best in the world CI offering to now having a pretty complete packaging offering to now getting a better and better release offering with our Kubernetes agent. So it wasn't obvious a few years ago that a DevOps platform was something that people needed. And it's becoming more obvious today, and we're, we're really proud to be leading in that and to uh, we make it, we think it makes a, a ton of sense. And it's a ton of functionality in one application, and there's not going to be a, a whole lot of products in that market uh, as we currently estimate the, the future. What about teams then who, who enjoy the DIY, the digital duct tape? And as you had said, you, you believe you have one of the best in the industry, CI platforms. And I don't, I don't disagree because you've been tested, you've, you've won awards, and I hear friends talk greatly about it. Unfortunately, our code is on GitHub. We are an open source project. We're liberally licensed. We're a platform for ourselves. Not people are like committing to our code and forking us, but we are open source. We're a very, the change.com code base is an example of a production Elixir uh, Phoenix application, which is pretty cool. But if we wanted to use, for example, your CI, we would have challenges because we have to sort of like, we have to have all of GitLab, right? We have to be, we have to be all in. How do you, 
how do you deal with that? Is that a major challenge? Is that a, are we a one-off and an anomaly or is that a major problem that you're trying to solve where it's like, okay, if you want to use GitLab, you want to use the CI feature, the CI CD feature, which is amazing. How can teams just use one amazing feature and slowly adopt the larger GitLab ecosystem? Yeah, you can. You, we're not forcing you to use everything. And almost every organization that transitions, transitions point by point, point solution by point solution. You can use GitLab CI with GitHub source control. So that's already possible today. And we find most customers embrace about three, replace three point solutions a year, in year one, two, and three. So it's a gradual adoption. And as for your question about the digital duct tape and enjoying that, that's great. We have a value called boring solutions. And there we say, look, don't bring your hobby into the code base. If you like something, that's great. If you want to experiment with something, that's great. Just don't bring it into the code base because the, the more boring we can keep that, the easier it is for other people to contribute. And I think that's why you should pick GitLab over digital duct tape. It's more fleshed out. It's easier to operate. It allows people to contribute. And you can focus on things that make a difference for your business specifically because you don't have to reinvent the DevOps wheel. That's, that's an effort. That's hundreds of contributions every month that are already happening. Mm -hmm. Is there a sweet spot in terms of team size that truly can embrace and enjoy the GitLab ecosystem? Like, is it a team of four, startup, brand new idea, move fast, or is it enterprise, lots of people, collaboration required? Like, how do you, how do you see GitLab? Where, where's the chasm there? So GitLab is used by kind of single individuals, seven-person teams, all the way to the, to the biggest organizations in the world. I think in general, it's the more tools you have and the more projects you have, the more it shines. The more complex, the better. So especially interesting is a lot of compliance and security requirements, really big organizations, lots of organization, lots of projects in motion, really want more metrics into productivity. Where are things getting stuck? That's that's where GitLab shines even more, where that's where the return is even bigger. Because mm -hmm. you're a full application, you're a full, a full platform versus just code, just deployment, you know, just CI. Maybe I guess now with ops trace and more monitoring, more observability like features as you begin to integrate that team and that platform into the GitLab stack. So it's interesting. What what do you think then um is the the new direction, the next direction, I would say. Not so much new, but next. Like, where is GitLab trending? What's the next big thing? Can you share? Can you forward think, Sid? I mean, you can't really, but how much can you share? Yeah, we have a lot of information out there in the in public. In general, we're very early in kind of building a DevOps platform. We consider only about 15% of the functionality in GitLab complete or lovable. So we've got a lot of work to do to make sure every single part is best in class. And at the same time, there's lots of exciting developments. Uh, for example, we're investing in ML ops, making it easier to also have your machine learning happening with the help of, uh, of GitLab. What about you? Do you, um, I know Dimitri stepped away. I don't recall the exact details of why. Maybe it was just good timing. I know he's had like a tw 10 year plus run. Maybe I can't recall the exact number of years, but what about for you? Do you, do you plan to be CEO for as long as you possibly can? What's your personal outlook and in, in your role at GitLab? Yeah, I'm committed to GitLab for the, for the long run and uh, I plan to stay on for as long as the, the board will have me. 
And for Dimitri, we, we talked about this during Y Combinator because we were going to raise from external investors. And I said, look, what's your commitment? Because like, if you take somebody else's money, you can't, you can't go. You have to, you have to try to return that. And he said, my commitment is 10 years. And I thought, wow, that's more than enough time. Right. Barely enough time, actually, right? Well, I thought from 20, talking from 2015. Mm-hmm. Then he said, no, 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 from, from the start of the project from 2011. So, Oh, wow, okay. So you were already four years into that 10 years. I, IPO was uh, two to month, uh, 10 years after that. Wow. Well, what about uh, your friendship? How did this journey treat you all? Were you, was that a bittersweet when he departed? Were you like... Hey, were you just loose terms on that 10 years? Can you rethink that? Can you make it 12? What was your, how did you handle it personally? No, I, I think it, it was good. I, I never asked him to reconsider. And also he was, he was ready for it. Imagine someone who is so creative and so, so much of a builder to, to kind of create GitLab from nothing. It's 10 years is a very long time to stick with a single project. Mm-hmm. And I think he did. He did awesome. As I said, in his last months, he still integrated error tracking into GitLab. So it was a great collaboration. And uh, he's now taking an extended break and look forward to seeing what he comes up with uh, after that. Yeah. Hopefully the creativity remains in the tech space and he doesn't move to an adjacent industry where we don't get to see it too much. Because obviously, if it's something tech related, we'll hear headlines. Maybe we'll hear it no matter what. Who knows? We'll see. But for now, he said, I look forward to no calendar. So yeah, for sure. I can imagine that. Well, if I had an exit from an IPO company, I would totally take an extended break and I would not feel bad at all, especially if I put my committed 10 years in and I stuck to my guns and I followed through, which is, you know, really half the battle I would say as just showing up is like sometimes to win deals in life, just show up and do what you say you're going to do. Right. Like that seems like such a shame that that's the bar show up on time, and do what you said you're going to do. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what it takes to win in most cases. But good for Dimitri and good for you and the rest of the team for for him sticking to that that commitment. What's next? What's on the horizon, Sid? What can you share? Any, anything in closing? Yeah, we're, we got a ton of plans. I'm just really excited about kind of the market we're in. If you, if you think about the DevOps market, imagine what an opportunity that is to go after. We can see the impact we have in companies. Mm-hmm. We're really excited to keep growing the capabilities, keep growing the, the community around GitLab. And every company needs to become a software company. And uh, it's great to be able to help them get a lot more productive at, at producing that. Well, Sid, it's, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, very excited for you and proud of the work you've put in and the rest of the team at GitLab. I think I may have DM'd you on LinkedIn. I think I may have emailed you. I can't recall, but I imagine you probably had a million emails and probably restrictions on who you can reply to. But when when the uh, when the moment happened that you all IPO'd, I was very happy for you. And behind the scenes, I had my hands in the air and saying, "Go Sid, go get Lab, go Team for you all," because I've been a, a big fan of yours over the years, and I'm just so happy that you've gotten to this moment. Uh, in, in your life and in your career and for the company. So well, really appreciate it. And yeah, I was, uh, we were in this quiet period at that time, which means keep your mouth shut. So I did that, but I, yeah. I really appreciate the support. I did not take offense by any means. I, I knew about the quiet period. I figured that was the case. So I wasn't, uh, wasn't offended or upset by any means. And I'm glad that uh, you made some time today to come here on the show today and just talk through where you're at and what you're up to. And uh, I'm very excited. So 
Anything else? Anything left? A- anywhere? Like if someone wants to keep up with with GitLab in terms of the future of the platform, if we've got our main audience, obviously, is the curious about entrepreneurship and the curious about being a founder and leading a tech company. But I think our primary audience really is developers. So if you're speaking to developers right now, you know, where can those folks go? Where's the best place for them to go to just track what is coming for GitLab in the future? Yeah, they, they can follow GitLab on Twitter. They can subscribe to our blog. There's also, if you Google GitLab Roadmap, you'll find you'll find a lot of uh, resources. And there's uh, there's also pretty good YouTube videos, for example, uh, our upcoming release. We uh, every month we have a we have a video about that. If you Google GitLab unfiltered YouTube, you'll you'll find a, a ton of videos. Awesome. So you get your roadmap online. We'll send folks to your YouTube, your Twitter, and I guess RSS on blogs. I don't know who subscribes to RSS these days. I know I still do. I still love RSS. Yeah, me me too. But for all the rest of people, you can just enter your email address and we'll uh, we'll send it to you. Very cool. Sid, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you. And uh, it's been fun talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. That's it. This show's done. Thank you for tuning in. What do you think about Sid's story, GitLab's journey, and their IPO status, and the massive win that is for open source? Let us know in the comments. Links are in the show notes. Thanks again to Sid for making time to come on this show. Truly appreciate it, Sid. And of course, big thanks to our friends and our partners at Fastly. Our pods in the Change Law Podcast universe are super fast globally because Fastly is fast globally. Check them out at Fastly.com. And also to our Beatmaster and Residence Breakmaster Cylinder, our beats are banging because BMC makes banging beats. And of course, last but not least, thank you to you for listening all the way to the very end. And I really appreciate everyone around the world who tunes to this show. If you haven't yet, head to FoundersTalk.fm for all the ways to subscribe. That's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you again real soon.